Tune in. Tune in. Tune in. It's the power of the game. It's the power of the game. It's the power of the game podcast by Golf Saudi. Hello and welcome along to another brand new episode of the Power of the Game podcast by Golf Saudi. We're down here at the beautiful Royal Greens Golf and Country Club, the week of the Aramco Team Series where the Ladies European Tour will reach its crescendo for the 2021 season. And I'm delighted to be joined by the Director of Instruction and Education here at Golf Saudi, Stephen Troop. Stephen, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much, Robbie. Yeah, good to be here. Did you ever envisage when you became a golf professional, what, 16, 17 years ago, that one day you would be heading up a national program for golf development in a, in a place where golf traditionally and historically just simply hasn't existed? Uh, no, 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 not at all, actually. Um, yeah, I got, I got into golf quite differently than, than most people did quite late. Um, my pathway into being a golf professional is probably more of the reverse than most people where as a good golfer, perhaps maybe an aspiring tour professional or whatever, then end up going into you know, working in the club industry or working in, in coaching. Um, for me, it was more along lines of not that good a golfer, but enjoyed playing golf and uh, ended up as a, working in a golf shop part-time and then being around that environment with those sort of people kind of then gave me more of a love for the game and more enjoyment in it and that got me better and then got into it from there. So you never actually aspired to, to play professionally? No, not, not at all actually. Um, I think there was obviously that, that kind of uh, admission that I wasn't as good as I needed to be. Um, you know, but, good uh, to have that level of self-awareness. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's just sometimes you've got to be a bit realistic. But for me, it just didn't seem like it was an achievable goal and I got kind of quite good a lot quicker um, but it was always embedded in coaching and custom fitting and stuff like that that kind of that opportunity to turn pro then came more out of an interest to try and help other people. So where did that fascination in, in coaching first start for you Stephen? Um, so I think the facility that I worked in kind of part-time and watching other golf pros, PGA professionals working in that environment such a, a large amount of people coming in on a daily basis at this um, facility that I worked at and you kind of see so many different people and different movements and, and you dig down a little bit deeper understanding you know the differences and how they move and, and then how they learn and I think with such a broad spectrum of people it kind of just became a little bit more fascinating than kind of just playing golf with your friends all the time you see how different people do different things and, and that kind of just gave birth to finding out more about it um, and, and that, that happened, worked there for about uh, four years and then was offered the opportunity um, to, to turn pro and I think it's not something that I expected to do but I took a year out after university to, to try and find a job and then this opportunity came so then it's back to university for that. So. Uh, and you've worked obviously in the Middle East for, for a long time, you, you recently joined the programme in Gulf Saudi but prior to that you were in, in, uh, in Oman and, and also Doha as well yeah. so you know the region very well. We're going to get on to some of the experiences that you've had but from your current perspective is it an overwhelming remit? I mean to basically be in charge of not just teaching people how to play golf, but, but growing the game in a region. And, and, and I know that obviously there's a whole team, you know, assembled to, to help that happen. But uh, does that feel in any way daunting or overwhelming at times? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge project and, and it's, 
it's so vast in its in, in enormity, really, you know, and, and the, the coaching aspect of it is, is one part of it. And, you know, we're lucky because we've got a great team within mass participation that, that are out there pushing forward the programs that we designed to get people into the game. But, I mean, I think that the whole project with Golf Saudi, I think, yeah, it's, it is quite daunting because there's so much going on, but it's, it's so exciting and, you know, you get past any of the difficulties because of what can be achieved. And, you know, I don't think there's ever been an opportunity anywhere in the world to, to do something like this, which is it's why it's a very easy thing to, to get on board with. And I think every single one of us in the, the company kind of feels the same way because it's certainly people that have worked in the golf industry. You know, I think for a lot of people that can be a dream to get to start with a blank canvas, you know, a little bit like a golf course architect, for instance, who just sees a, a piece of land that's got very little character and how can you shape that into being a golf course? Or taking a, a unique piece of land and going, well, you can do some really cool stuff with this. A little bit like us as a, an entire, you know, golf environment that doesn't exist, what, what can we do? Well, that's it, because obviously people are quite resistant to change, m mainly. And, you know, in established golf markets, uh, a lot of people would rail against new ideas, whereas here, as you mentioned, this blank canvas, yeah. you can kind of create or, or fashion your own vision of what you think bringing golf to people should be. Yeah. And that, that allows you to be very creative, but at the same time, I suppose, also it, it kind of asks you to reimagine what, what sort of teaching this game and growing this game in a, in a country which is not familiar with it is like. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. People generally are quite resistant to change, but that typically comes from the fact that things are already inbuilt in that culture. You know, I think if we look at the transition that's happening now with, you know, modern Saudi Arabia, I don't think it's it's resistance to change. It's it's seeing possibilities and opportunities that haven't been available in the past. And and again, there's very few places in the world where you could actually say that. So I think when you know, we, we go out into the public space and mass participation runs something that, that engages people to try the game. People want to get in there and do it. And, and that can be as random and as imaginative as you possibly can get. And people want to try it because they haven't had access to these things before. And that's, that's the cool thing about what we get to do on a daily basis is the fact that we don't have to change modern perceptions of what golf is. And, you know, I think certainly I'm for me growing up, you know, golf was always seen as being that sport that the older people did or people with a lot of money would do. And, and I think worldwide that's still quite a popular opinion. Whereas when people don't know what golf is, then all of a sudden we get to completely control that narrative and we can put it out there in the public space in a way that never gets put out anywhere else in the world, or at least then that resistance to change becomes less of a factor. Absolutely. So, so in that case, how would you describe to the uninitiated your, your remit in your, in your role as Director of Instruction and Education? I mean, are you, are you giving lessons? Is it big picture stuff? What, what's, what, what's your main area of focus? Uh, yeah, I guess from my point of view, it's, it's a little bit more bigger picture. I mean, we've, we've done really well with the mass and a team that are out there, you know, delivering golf coaching, the mass participation are all over the country now, you know, and, and that's the really cool thing, how much it can grow, because anyone should have the opportunity to just have fun, because that's what, what it really has to be. Um, and, you know, sport in general has to be enjoyed by everyone. It can be enjoyed by anyone, making it fun. So I think for, for me, it's 
making sure that whatever we create that goes out into the public is first and foremost it's got to be fun and it's got to make people want to try it and if you can try it then if we do it the right way they get a little bit more likely to be engaged so yeah it's just trying to set set it in the right kind of direction in terms of what coaching modern coaching should be and what programs need to be and how do you make it fun and accessible for anyone? Yeah, there's quite a few things going on here because, yeah. you know, I've been in, in this region a long time. There's always been a big emphasis on the professional game here and bringing events to this region, showcasing the best players on the planet and, and hoping, I think, one day that someone from this part of the world will ascend to that, to that high level. Um, but there hasn't been previously this emphasis, this very forensic sort of... Uh, um, kind of uh, investigation into how to grow the game at the grassroots level that we're seeing now. So how do you put a program like that together? I mean, grass, grassroots golf, I think, exists pretty much most places in the world, certainly golfing um, destinations. And the one thing I always see with, um, with grassroots golf is, is, that, is that conversion into being an actual golfer is it's such a tiny, tiny amount. Um, they always look at, you know, that the cost then becomes a factor, you know, so you, you learn in golf at school for free, for instance, and then you have to then have the money to then join a club because that's where you play. Um, your parents have got to get you to the golf club and that, that time constraint, I think, in, in modern culture really is quite a difficult thing, especially in, in where we are in the Middle East and Saudi in particular, where you'll typically find, you know, parents have got three, four or five children. You know, it's not like you've, you're one and it's easy to take them to and from activities. So it's about trying to populate the public space with as many different activities that the family can then get involved in as well. So, you know, grassroots may be where it starts, but it's not just, you know, golf in school it's what does it look like out in the public space where you can go and play crazy putting miniature golf courses with your parents and your grandparents and your four-year-olds and anyone in the family can then play it and I think that essentially is is grassroots it's it's just trying to put golf into the public space for as many different people in that first touch kind of element where that engagement grows and it mm. continues to grow and then they're more likely to then go you know what I really enjoy that or the parents are like I get it. I understand why golf's a good sport for you because we know that golf's a fantastic sport in the, the behavioural um, development that you can see in children. You know, golf comes with its its values of you know honesty and determination and the value of sportsmanship, which I think when you compare it to other sports, it's not quite the same. Golf offers a little bit more, and I think. You know, when parents start to see that, because they've been engaged with it, they don't get to engage with it at school level. The kids can say, oh, yeah, I really love golf, mum, but the parents themselves might not understand it. So, yeah, we, we can get the parents involved, and all of a sudden that engagement rolls in, and then we'll hopefully get more golfers. Yeah, in fact, most of the, the, the professionals that we've spoken to on this podcast, they had great support from their parents. Emily Pedersen being a great example, her father supporting her pretty much from the start and also through difficult times in her career as well, being there and kind of offering an emotional support as well as obviously all the practical elements of, of uh, you know, allowing her to try and realise her potential. And if you look at golf, I suppose the, the kind of iconic example is, is Earl Woods with, yeah. with Tiger, that father-son relationship. Um, that you know you get these parents that that almost live vicariously through their kids and 
it's not just wanting them to succeed, it's devising a game plan yeah. for them to succeed. And obviously this country won't have that because the parents are also being introduced to the sport. There won't be that kind of conveyor belt of, yeah. uh, but maybe in a generation or two that, that might start to happen. So I think probably the, the, the sort of realization is that it will take quite a bit of time for this, for golf to become embedded in the culture. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I don't, I'm not, I don't think it, it will take longer than it would do if we were talking about a slightly different location or anywhere else in the world. And I think it's the fact that it is new is the opportunity. The fact that you know, kids are only now starting to get access to sport in schools. The fact that other sports are growing around. People, I think, now are going, you know, we, we haven't been able to do this in the past. Now there's that influx of people that want to do it. So I think that speeds things up a little bit straight off the bat. Um, I think that the, the, the parent aspect, I think that that's in itself it is an opportunity. Um, I think in certainly what I've seen, you can see those kind of parents that live a little bit more like this is what I want you to do because that's what I wanted to do. I think it can sometimes get to the point where children are then led down the wrong path because it's not their journey, it's somebody else's journey. Um, and you can see a lot of drop off because they're forced into doing something that may not be fun. You know, if the child gets to do it their way and gets supported along that line, then hopefully you create something that they enjoy doing a lot more instead of being forced into. The choice is there to, to pick what they want to do. I think, so yeah, having parents there to support, I think is, is massive, but not necessarily drive it because no. of their, their motivation. Not totally crucial. Um, Speaking of, of Tiger, I know that you, know, you and I are probably of the generation who grew up uh, kind of idolizing him or, or at yeah. least being inspired by him on some level. And golf has undergone a transformation as a sport in the last 20 years. And when I say that, probably back in, in, in the 90s, it, a lot of people would have challenged the idea that it even was a sport. You know, it's, it's become undeniably more athletic. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's become the age of professionalism and the money in the game has brought about, and I think led by you know, the achievements of, of Tiger, have, have totally transformed what you now see as the professional landscape. So how have you kind of navigated that with your coaching as well? And, and what would you say your biggest learnings were in terms of how the game is taught and how the game is played in the last 15, 16 years? I, I mean, it is so different you know and and for me i've only ever known golf since tiger i mean i i only play golf because of tiger he made golf exciting you know and watching him win in uh, 97 at the masters that was the first time i'd watched golf on television and i thought oh, wow, this is incredible because that was something the world had never seen everyone there's so many different stories so many different firsts that went on that week at augusta and you know he changed I, th I mean, listen, people, people have changed the game along the ways, and I think that's a, a term that, that, that gets overused a little bit too much, but I think um, whether we call it modernised the game or you know, exposed more people to different factors that were on in the game with regards to fitness and the, the hard work ethic he had, you know, people have had that before, but I think what Tiger brought to it was he packaged all of that together, you know, where Hogan practiced harder than anybody else practiced. Palmer was that kind of world celebrity, you know, Player was that international traveler, but Tiger brought all of that together. And then you've got kind of the, the 
the race aspect as well, which was which such a huge story from that point of view. So they broke a lot of barriers. Um, but what he did was he made it exciting and he made it fun. And I think when people can do that, then you know people want to be involved in it a little bit more because we go back to those general perceptions of golf. Is that, uh, it's boring. It's for old people. Where that that wasn't Tiger Woods back in '97. And I think you know. If you, from my point of view, go back to your question with regards how has that changed coaching? You think there's not many people that have basically taken their 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 fingerprint, their golf swing, their identity, and changed that multiple times and been successful with it. You know, Faldo was obviously the the best example of that up until Tiger, where he very successful golfer. And like, how do I win majors? Then he's had that conversation with with Ledbetter, and then he completely changed his golf swing. And I think. What in golf coaching we've learned is the fact that everyone is different and you can't fit people into a mold. You know, and I think when you have the time like Tiger had, when you have the talent that Tiger had, and you have the, the team around him and the dedication, then it's a little easier to say, well, that mold, can that, I'll try and put myself into that. But he's had those conversations with people to find out what was the right thing for him at that time, whether it was avoiding the, the back problems or the knee problems, whether it was um, avoiding one of his, his errant shots. Um, I think what we see with modern coaching now is that people tend to get pushed into this is what it should look like. Yeah. Whereas it's really about trying to find what do you need to do? Because we all move different. We all have different skills. You know, we all play different sports. Um, I've been quite lucky where you know, I've spent a lot of time with other um, sportsmen and that's something that the Middle East has given me where you know, professional footballers and tennis players and cricketers where you watch what they do and they move certain ways because of the sports that they have played. And you have to identify what's the right movement in your golf swing to fit around all those cool stuff that, that you already do instead of going, this is what it should be like because that's what he does. And I think that individualism with it is, is the one thing I think's changed a lot um, over the over the last kind of 10, 15 years. It is remarkable with Tiger. Yeah. Um, you know, the Butch Harmon swing then totally changed it with Hank yeah. Haney, then Chris Comer, and then he was his own coach when yeah. he won the, the, the final of, or 15th of his majors, the most recent today at the Masters. You know, he, yeah. he sort of figured it out and it, he'd kind of come full circle. Um, you've obviously uh, been exposed to the, to the coaching of, of Pete Cowan. Um, at the, in Doha, uh, legendary figure on the European tour. He's helped so many top professionals, Lee Westwood, Henrik Stenson, I know latterly Matt Fitzpatrick has worked with him as well. He's done some work with Brooks Koepka. Um, how have you kind of, or what have you learned from, from Pete's methods? Pete has a very distinctive method, doesn't he, of, of teaching golf, um, which is quite technical in, uh, to, to my eyes at least. Yeah, I think it's... I think Pete, Pete and Mike, and, and I think a lot of these guys is that they spend a lot of time working with, with elite golfers, but they do spend a lot of time working with your everyday golfer, and that's the one thing that I think most people don't really see, um, you know, because you see those guys like Claude Harmon or, or Butch or anything, you see them with your Ricky Fowlers, you see them with your Hendrick Stensons, um, but again, they, they've built this up over time working with your everyday golfer, you know, they got to where they are because they started with your, your 30 handicappers, your 10 handicappers, and they, they've learned themselves what people do well and, and what the right thing is for them, and they're all quite different. Um, but I think the thing with 
I mean, like with Pete, essentially, is that it may look technical, but it's actually not that technical. You know, it's just it's a sound philosophy that, that he works with and he thinks is is right. Um, quite quite still feel based, which essentially it has to be because you'll feel things different than I feel things different than everybody else, and it's just trying to dig down into to what that is. But it's all built around a sound principle, and I think I think whatever anyone's philosophy may be it's 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 understanding that sometimes it has to be adaptable and i think yeah. that's 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 vital and especially when we go back to what we're doing here in saudi arabia where people haven't had sporting skills you know the parents of the children that, that we're working with and that we will still get into the game they haven't played sport in school so they don't have the same movement patterns that we will have developed over over school years. So it's it's learned to be um, adaptable, and then we even look at it into the disability sector and everyone being able to, to play the game. You have to you have to adapt around certain situations. There, there are certain tropes in golf. I mean, one one being that if you have a golf lesson, you have to be prepared to play play terrible golf for the yeah. next six months as you get get used to it. And it's sort of my my experience of growing up playing. I was completely befuddled by the yeah. lessons I had as a kid. Jargon, you know, yeah. it was just kind of I, I didn't understand it. Um, and it's taken me a long time to actually understand how to be constructive in how I actually improve yeah. and. and practice properly and, and actually when I have a lesson to to actually use what I learned in the lesson to because you can't just have a lesson and improve you've you've obviously got to put the time in as well I think I think it's 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 knowing what does that person want to achieve and then understanding well these are the things that you're going to have to do to make that possible you know how much time do you have to practice well I don't have a lot you know and I, I think we, we use like the term quick fix and there's nothing better than a quick fix if if your job is you know what I'm just hitting it right I want to stop hitting it right and you can fix that and that that can be a very very simple simple uh, solution if you turn around and say well you know I want to be a scratch golfer then that's a completely different discussion and I think um, it, it, it has to be about making it simple you'll get a very small amount of people that that want all the detail, that want all the numbers, you know, when it comes to what's your club face angle, what's your path, and what does something like Trapman give you? And, you know, when you look at the elite part of the game, then that's expected. Um, but if you look at your everyday golfer, it's not necessarily required. Um, I think it's, it's about making it simple, but making it individualistic, not just in terms of methodology or philosophy, but in terms of well, what, what are your goals and what does someone need to achieve? Bringing it back to Golf Saudi, I know that there's obviously certain targets that have been kind of set in every every different sector of the game, right up to the sort of elite level as well. What for you would be the big drivers of growth? Would it be to uh, to have someone break through and actually achieve some kind of international status? Would it be, you know, um, reimagining how golf is taught uh, and how it's, it's introducing people to the game at, at the very sort of basic beginner level as well because I know that there's different ways that you're going to filter the game into to different areas of society as well yeah. I, I, I think everything you know because it, people resonate with different things you know I think um, a little bit like for me what was Tiger Woods I'd already played golf but it was just a hobby at the time it wasn't a passion um, but at the same time you know maybe that love was created off doing it at the very beginning stages and then you just carry on from there so I think the more different things we can do the more likely are to to create 
big numbers because we do different things that resonate with different people. And again, goes back to that that individual kind of aspect to it. You know, different people want different things. They see things differently. So the more variety we have, the, the better it will be. I don't think it's any one particular thing. And the cool thing is that we're ticking so many boxes, whether that be, you know, elite players. We've got people like Othman Al-Mula, and we've got uh, Saud Al-Sharif, and, and uh, Khalid Al-Faisal, and Abdurrahman Al-Mansur, and people look up to them because they're in the public space, and they're achieving great things regionally. Um, but at the same time, then, you're looking at a child at school that gets to play the game with his friends or then goes to the mall with his parents. So I think it's, it's so wide range that I think the more things that we have, the more people get into it. I don't think there's one thing. You, you've got your Ladies First program as well. How much of a buzz are these events creating in the kingdom? Give us an, give us an insight into you know, the ripples that, the, that these, the, the Aramco Team Series and the, the Saudi Ladies International and, and events like that are actually creating when when local women can see what these girls are doing out here on tour. Yeah, and I think it, it all comes back into to, to change, you know, putting things into the public space that haven't existed before. And I think the the ladies piece, I think ladies golf is definitely going through through a transition over the last kind of five, six years. Um, and I think what has happened with the Aramco Team Series and the, the, the Aramco Saudi Ladies International and how all of that kind of fits together, um, it's, it's incredibly fascinating and you know, we talk about the power of the game and I think, and, and that's essentially it, you know, how does Golf Saudi become, you know, uh, a catalyst for change in a society that is going through such a massive change and you know, being able to just give ladies access to golf, it, it, it shouldn't be about, oh, let's give ladies access to golf because everyone should get it. But with the story and the change that Saudi Arabia is going through, it makes it much more of a powerful statement. And, and we can showcase that change by hosting these international events where you know people that don't know what Saudi is about or um, have preconceived ideas of what Saudi Arabia is about, get to see things like this that go on and, and what we're doing for, for women's sport in general is it's quite quite fascinating. I mean, you know, we'd launched that, that program and we didn't realise that it was going to be as, as big as, as it has turned out. Um, you know, a thousand ladies that I remember having having the meeting about it. Um, and it was like, Oof, that's 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 a lot, you know, and like that was signed up within two hours. You know, and I think as, as we grow and we have more facilities and we have more, even more team to do it, 20,000, you know, it's, it's very easy for us to, to, to grow that. And they're so excited by it, you know, that's, that's a really cool thing. And, you know, we had um, in, uh, in Sota Grande for the Aramco Team Series event there, we had um, uh, all these ladies um, that come to visit who don't live in Saudi Arabia and they were incredibly passionate about this and they were like, I can't believe that this kind of thing's happening for women in Saudi Arabia because they didn't have access to that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a really cool story and um, it, it will grow and it will continue to get bigger as they go and, you know, these ladies get access to, to coaching, access to, to play on the course, equipment, you know, and if we take a couple of them want to be full-time golfers and, you know, their children then become, it's just a snowballing effect. From the ladies to the, the kids, because I know you're, you're, you're bringing the, the curriculum or you're, you're introducing golf into the curriculum. I might have this stat wrong, 135,000 
uh, kids by 2025, I think it is, in yep. the school curriculum. Yeah. I'm just, I think, I think yeah. that's right, but yeah, that, that's obviously a big number. Yeah. Um, and how do you ensure that it's fun, that you hook kids, that, you know, um, how do you roll that out, basically? Yeah, I think the, the, the school program's pretty cool because it's, there's so many other people involved in it other than just us at Golf Saudi. You know, we, um, it, Golf Saudi exists around creating a, a sustainable golf environment for Saudi Arabia. And, and part of that is they're making sure then that we have the right people to deliver it. You know, we, we can't be an organization that just hires more and more golf professionals. We need to be the type of organization that then creates golf professionals to be able to deliver this. And then and part of that, you know, one small part of that is then the people that deliver our school program are trained by our team, but they're the school teachers. You know, so the, the PE teachers themselves are, are given skills that they didn't have before. They get to lead our program. Um, so straight away that, that has a massive effect because it's not me delivering a school program, it's someone that they already know, someone they connect with, someone that is a PE teacher, someone that speaks Arabic, therefore then all the, other, all the schools are capable of, of learning the game. So I think that's, that's one thing because then by using the, the network of school teachers that, that we get access through from the, the Ministry of Education and um, the Sports for All Federation, we then have a massive amount of teachers which makes that school program so much bigger because if we had to to hire lots of golf professionals, you know, there's not really a sustainable environment there. We can't make the program as big. So we could put it on a large scale. The type of equipment we use, the, the way that we, we create it through more game-based learning makes it fun. You know, and again, it's, it's those early stages and how does it go on from there is when it starts to get a little bit more um, varieted where we introduce certain elements at golf club and so on and so forth from there. So I think the, the school program, how do you entice them? It's got to be fun. You've got to make it specific to their environment, whereas the school teachers are there, they, they speak Arabic. And yeah, the equipment is such a huge aspect as well. You can use it indoors, you can use it outside. You know, I think for us, you would never, when we were at school, never thought back in the UK that you would learn golf inside school. You know, that's kind of where we played football or basketball or whatever it would be. But all this stuff can be indoors, you know, and, and that's the power of the type of equipment that we use. Makes it easier as well. It's bigger, lighter. What do you see, in, in, and then Stephen, in terms of the future of the game? Um, obviously golf under pressure in this space to sort of uh, be appealing, to, 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 to attract new people. Golf's had a, a real boom and surge in popularity in the last sort of 18 months. I think, I think the pandemic actually really played its own part in, in revitalizing golf for a lot of people and being a place where you can do all the things that you need to be doing in terms of being socially distant and, and that kind of thing last year. Certainly in places like the UK and the US, there were massive spikes in the numbers. So, um, but also golf has still got this, probably this bad image or not bad image, but, but a, an image that it, it wants to kind of shake off of being as you mentioned earlier, a sport for, for older people and, and, and not, as, not as exciting maybe as, as, as some of the other sports. Like, how does golf continue to, for want of a better word, rebrand itself? Um, I, I think that's, that's the opportunity that, that we have really is that because we're, we're doing firsts every day, you know, the rest of the world starts to see what goes on. I mean, you look at the Aramco Team Series event, you know, that's something that's never ever happened before, to have team golf you know we're used to 
four rounds, 72-hole tournaments. And, you know, I think for a non-golfer, that's a, that's a tough watch. You know, it's, it's not necessarily as engaging as it could be to then bring in a new market of people that would be attracted to the game. So I think it's been a catalyst for change, not just in Saudi Arabia, but worldwide, and, and doing things that have never been done before, which we can do here, because there are no boundaries. You know, we can, we can do what we want if there's uh, a, a, a good reason for it, if it fits in with the, the identity and the, the, uh, the way that the company's shaped, then yeah, we, can, we can do all those things. And I think the world starts to see, well, that, that works. And, you know, people see that we can put in a national curriculum for everyone in school. We can see that we can change um, how tournament golf can, can be put out there on the public space. You know, it's events in public areas that you would normally have. I think all of those things kind of just help create appeal. And other people, if other countries can see a little bit of what we do, then, then that's, that's, that's great because then hopefully change happens. I think that the one really cool thing that, that, that I get involved in is, you know, we, we, we talk about the amount of golf development that will be going on here in Saudi Arabia and go back to what we were talking about with the national sustainability strategy. How do we, how do we make that more important for the population here and to think, look at the region in terms of who runs golf clubs, who works in golf clubs. It's typically people that have come from other parts of the world. You know, what big part of what we're doing is to make sure that the people that work in the industry here are people that, that live here, you know, Saudi nationals that can then have a career working in the golf industry, whether that be in, in club management, whether that be in, in retail, F&B, it, it doesn't matter. There's so many different aspects to the golf industry. So um, I think that's, that's quite a unique piece that I think regionally can be, can be quite looked upon and going, well, that's, that's new, that's not been done before because um, you're giving people the opportunity for a career. What's the coolest experience you've had personally since joining Golf Saudi? Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, I, just, I don't think there's a, a, a single thing. I think, uh, I think the madness actually would probably be the cool thing because there's just so much going on and we, we get embedded to, to some really, really cool things on a, a daily basis. I think a lot, for me, a lot of the stuff is it's it's work in progress, and, and we're getting closer to launching all these different things. You know, going through the education to give people you know jobs in the industry. You know, yeah, it's I, I I don't know. I don't think there's a particular one thing. I think it, it all is a package. It's just exciting on a daily basis, and it's never you know it, it's. It, a lot of people will say this, but you never come to work and go, oh, it's another day at work. It's like, what, what, what's going to happen today? What are we going to get involved in today? And, and that's, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I mean, not many people, certainly in the golf industry, are, are in that position. Yeah. Um, your aspirations for the next few years, I mean, personally and, and as, a, as a project, as, as the kind of under the Golf Saudi name, what, what would you love to see achieved in the next few years? Yeah, um, I think for me personally, I think you know, how many people can we have working within the industry that are Saudi nationals? I think uh, one of our, our goals is by 2025 to have 2,250 Saudi nationals working within the industry. Um, and that's, that's a big number. Um, 
and, and through that we have to educate people as to, to what club life is, what the golf industry is. I think once we can roll out that education in, in, in its entirety and get people moving through that track and then giving them the internships at club, opening up those job opportunities, I think that for me is, is really quite an important part because um, that's really what, what will make the whole project you know, a big part of the sustainability aspect to it. Um, so yeah, I think I think that for me is a, a really good passion driver for sure. It's honestly, genuinely, it's so fascinating to see what's going on here. Uh, not just from a professional event experience, which we've obviously been seeing in the in the region for a couple of years now, but but also you know looking in and, and actually watching how this all develops. So for us as as kind of bystanders, it's very yeah. interesting and exciting. For you uh, on the coal face, it's uh, it's an amazing opportunity, Stephen. So. We really thank you for being on the podcast and, uh, and it's, it's great to get an insight into what's going on in Gulf Saudi. Yeah, thanks very much, Robbie. You can learn more about the project and all the initiatives at Gulf Saudi. You can check out the Gulf Saudi website, follow on social media, of course. A massive thanks to our guest today, Stephen Troop. And we'll have more guests coming for you very, very soon on the podcast. You've been watching The Power of the Game, uh, the Gulf Saudi podcast, more episodes on the way.